The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This is a wonderful uh, subject that we're looking at now, the person of Christ, and we began our study last week. Uh, Did you all get a handout or more or less uh, page six talking about the sinlessness of Christ, uh, which we discussed, I think, pretty thoroughly, uh, at least in terms of the outline last week, Um, but uh, that's a good place to begin. Uh, Jesus Christ was sinless. He never sinned, never once, and that's an astonishing thing, and it's more amazing the more you go on in your Christian life, isn't it? Because you begin to see more and more how many different ways there are to sin. Oh, there's sins of omission and sins of commission of many different kinds in both categories. There's all kinds of things that God has called on us to do. And we walk right by them as though we have blinders on. We don't even see them. Uh, And Jesus Christ never missed anything the Father wanted him to do. Every single ministry, every single thing the Father wanted him to do, he did it. You think about Ephesians 2.10, it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Uh, But we don't walk in them, not perfectly. We miss many of them, don't we? All those good works that God intends. Uh, Jesus didn't. He didn't miss any of them. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And he did. You think about in John 17, Jesus prays and says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Isn't that incredible? I mean, to say that for one day, put your head on your pillow and say, I brought you glory today by doing everything you wanted me to do. Go ahead and say that with a clear conscience. All right. I brought you glory today by doing everything you wanted me to do. He could do it at the end of his life. And he assumed in his prayer that he would die on the cross the next day. That was already included when he spoke in the past tense. I have brought you glory on earth by doing everything you commanded me to do. So he's going to die. There's no doubt about it. He's already committed to it. It's an amazing thing. Jesus never sinned. He never missed any of the good works the Father had for him to do. Conversely, he never committed any sins. He never he never transgressed. He never violated any commands of God. Now, that's an amazing thing, especially when you realize it says in Hebrews, I think chapter 12, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. He was hammered every day of his public ministry. He had people who wanted to kill him I mean, right from the very beginning, you remember how his public ministry began? Do you remember how he was in that uh, synagogue in Nazareth? And he reads that uh, reading from Isaiah's scroll. And he says, today in your hearing, the scripture is fulfilled. You remember? They're so, so amazed. He's saying the messianic prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor and to heal the sick and raise the dead. And all these things he preaches right out of Isaiah's scroll and says it's fulfilled today in your hearing. Well, they were amazed at that, but it wasn't until he started talking about ministry to the Gentiles that they just went berserk. He said, you know, there were lots of widows in, uh, in Israel during the time of the famine, but uh, Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath. And, uh, you know, there are lots of people in Israel with the leprosy during the days of Naaman, the Syrian, but only Naaman was healed. When they heard that, they, they wanted to take him to a cliff and push him off. 
Now, you think how you are in a time of great conflict, controversy, when somebody's very upset at you. Are you not likely to say something you wish you hadn't said? To do something you wish you hadn't done? Isn't there a great temptation to sin at that moment? He never did. Not inside, not outside. Never. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? The sinlessness of Christ. And I don't think we can meditate on it too much. You know why? Because I'll say this later on in our time today, but that is your righteousness. That's it. The fact that he never sinned. That's a negative thing. He never sinned. Let's turn it around. He was always righteous, perfectly righteous. And it's in that perfection of righteousness that you will stand on judgment day. It's a beautiful, beautiful garment of righteousness. And frankly, it's in that garment of righteousness that God sees you right now. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But if you're a Christian, God sees you as perfectly righteous as Jesus. Now, he's not blind to the things you do. He knows when you sin and he knows when you need to confess sin. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying positionally, that's how he sees you. And that's a beautiful thing. Jesus never sinned. And so we have on page six, many statements of his sinlessness. We, we covered this last time. Uh, we don't need to go over all of them. But in Hebrews 4.15, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So there it is. He was sinless. Now, I think it's appropriate for us at this point to talk about Jesus' temptations. This is where we were last time, and it brings us to a bit of a quandary, doesn't it? Could Jesus have sinned? The issue is, if Jesus could not sin, was he really tempted? And to try to understand the nature of Jesus' temptations is really beyond us. Uh, A number of you came up and asked me some questions concerning that. And perhaps in the back of your mind is this statement in James describing the nature of temptation. And it's very troubling. When you look at it, James 1.13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, there's at least two problems in that discussion of temptation and sin in James. Two problems for us when we consider the pure uh, person of Christ. What are they? Do you see them? What are the two problems in James? I, I only gave you part of the verse, but if you want to look, James 1, 13 and 14 is the full issue. Go ahead and look there in your Bibles. James 1, 13 and 14. But there's at least two problems concerning Jesus and temptation in James 1, 13 and 14. Yes, Jim. So there you go. You immediately have a problem there. If Jesus is God, then he can't be tempted, right? So there's a problem enough right there. The deity of Christ is established. We believe that Christ is God. Then how could he have been tempted? There's another problem later in verse 14. Stephen. Evil desires. And so what's the problem concerning Jesus? He had none. No evil desires, and therefore temptation is impossible for him. So it seems. So what are the solutions? <laughs> yes, Sean. Right. Yeah, clearly, I think the first one is dealt with by the doctrine of the incarnation. He came into our situation. He presented himself to things that he did not have to experience as 
you know, uh, as God before the incarnation. What's a very good example of something he did not have to experience before he took on a human body? What's that? Death. Clearly. Uh, our God is immortal. He, he cannot die. And uh, so if you have the same kind of, may I say, wooden thinking, uh, and the Jehovah's Witnesses do this, if Jesus is God, then God was dead for three days. You know, they have this kind of a wooden way of thinking. They forget that we're really talking about the body of Jesus and there's a focus on the body. And on the, in the focus on the body and the human side of Christ, he was tempted. Now, clearly, uh, ultimately, we, we rest in this. The Bible says Jesus was tempted, right? Doesn't that kind of settle the matter? The Bible also says Jesus was God. So we're forced to interpret James a different way. That's all. We just are because Jesus is God as proven by many texts of Scripture and Jesus was tempted as proven by other texts of Scripture. And so whatever James 1 means concerning God, uh, we have to adjust our thinking somehow. We can't in a wooden way prove that Jesus isn't God because he was tempted. Uh, concerning the, uh, the evil desires, each one is tempted when by his own evil desires He's dragged away and enticed. How do you address that problem? Jesus had no evil desires. Yes, James. Right, and I think that's the direction I'd want to go. That James is not making a comprehensive statement about all temptations there are in God's universe. Rather, we could say he's definitely talking about children of Adam those of us who have a history with sin, right? Those of us who have yielded to sin, who have been surrounded by sin, who like Isaiah can say, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've been defiled and I have a whole history with sin and, and I do have evil desires inside and, and that's what drags me away. Jesus had none of that and yet he was tempted and therefore there must be some kinds of temptations that do not connect to evil desires. Again, a simple way, confidence in scripture is going to help you through here. There must be some types of temptations that do not in any way connect to evil desire. Now, what are they? I don't know. I don't ultimately know how Jesus is tempted. I've often thought about this. I say, what kind of temptation could it be? It's kind of like a, a, a magnet and a piece of oak. You know, I mean, there's just no pull. There's nothing evil inside Jesus. He's only ever repulsed by anything that's evil, right? In his nature. And yet there he is in Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood, Right? It says in Hebrews, he was he himself suffered when he was tempted. And therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Those are clear statements from Scripture. So evidently, it was a severe test of temptation he went through. And yet, it was not the James 1 type in which there's evil desires inside. Yes, Landis. Now that's right. Uh, there are some aspects to his person and his calling that don't directly relate to us. But I think there are some that even there, for example, Jesus' mission was to go to the cross. That was his cup to drink, right? All right. And it was unique to him, right? 
But remember how James and John wanted to sit at Jesus' right and his left in the kingdom. You remember, remember how, what Jesus said to them? What did he say? You don't know what you're asking. Remember he said that? You don't, know, you don't understand the nature of my kingdom and you sure don't know what the seats are going to be like at my right and my left. I'd have to think at the left hand of Jesus is God the Father. Uh, but aside from all that, since he's at the right hand of God, but well, another matter, Jesus doesn't go that direction. Instead, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup I'm about to drink? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Remember what they said? Yes, we can. <laughs> well, if, it's, if it stands to reason they didn't know what they were asking, neither did they know what they were answering at that moment. What I think we get out of that is, and Jesus then goes on from there to say, you will indeed drink from my cup, but you will not drink my cup. In other words, there's like some, some spilling out from the sufferings of Christ that we take in, but they're nothing directly like Christ's sufferings, right? So we experience our own crosses. Jesus said, if anyone does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, we have our own crosses to bear. We have our own cups to drink. We have our own burdens. And so therefore, Gethsemane is still relevant to us, even though we don't have to bear the sin of the world. And so we can still learn something from the way Jesus fights temptations, even though as Landis said, and I agree, there's a level of his temptations we can't reach because we have a different calling and we're different than he is. So I think Jesus' battle with sin, his successful battle with sin in, uh, in Matthew 4, the temptations in the, in the desert, uh, his successful battle is still relevant for us, isn't it? Has the devil ever come to you and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread? Has you ever, have you ever been tempted to do that? I never have. That temptation is clearly unique to Jesus' person and, and, and messianic power. But he answers in a way totally relevant to all of us. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I've not been told by God to do that, even to feed my empty stomach. So I'm not going to do it. When he speaks, I'll eat. Is that relevant to you? Yeah, it is. And so Jesus, by his answer and the way he fights temptation, makes it relevant for all of us. And he does it in every case. You, you, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. And uh, it is also written, or away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Those three answers are relevant to us, aren't they? Uh, the temptations are not so relevant to us, like throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor if you'll bow down. That's never been offered to any of you, I can assure you, or to me. So the three temptations are all at a high level not connected to us because the devil knew who Jesus was. But Jesus' answers and his responses are right where we live, aren't they? And Jesus knew why. Because he knew that Matthew and Luke would be written. We could read about how he fought those temptations and we can fight them too. And Hebrews 4 would be written so that we have a sympathetic high priest and we can go to him in our time of need and he'll help us resist. So Jesus, all I can say, it's a mystery. We're ultimately dealing with mystery here. Jesus, pure and holy and perfect as light, has no evil desires, none whatsoever. He is God, and yet he is totally, he is tempted in every way, it says, as we are. And uh, he has no evil desires, and yet somehow there's temptation. So that's the best that we can do. Now, the question before us is, could Jesus really have sinned? Was it really a possibility? And uh, this is a, a philosophical or theological question, but given that we're studying systematic theology, it's fair game, right? We're, we're able to do this kind of thing to dig in and to ask these kinds of questions. Uh, Jesus never actually sinned, but Jesus actually was tempted. That we've got already. Uh, we've already covered James. Now, Gerhardus Voss gives five statements that Grudem quotes uh, favorably and helps to answer this question, could Jesus really have sinned? 
First, Voss says, if Jesus' human nature had existed by itself, independent of his divine nature, then it would have been a human nature just like that God, that God gave to Adam and Eve. Therefore, it would have been free from sin and yet able to sin. But Jesus' human nature never existed apart from his divine nature. Never. There was never a time that he was only human and not also divine. Never. From the moment of conception, he was both fully God and fully man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, right? From that moment, he was fully God and fully man. Although there were some things, such as being hungry or thirsty or weak, that Jesus experienced in his human nature alone, nonetheless, if Jesus had sinned, it would have involved his entire person, both his human and divine natures. You can't separate them. You can't say, well, I'm just sinning as a man right now. We human beings are very good at compartmentalization, aren't we? Well, I did that as this. But no, no, there was a perfect integration to Jesus' person. We'll get to that when we study uh, the various doctrines of uh, false doctrines of how the human and the divine natures of Christ related. They weren't like two boards kind of stuck together. There was a total integration of his person. Two natures, one person. And so if he had sin, it would have been as God and as man at the same time. It's not a bifurcation or compartmentalization there. He would have sinned as God. But if Jesus the person had sin involving both his human and divine nature, then God himself would have sinned and would have ceased to be God. Yet this is clearly impossible because of the infinite holiness of God's nature. Therefore, what? Therefore, Jesus could never have sinned. Really couldn't have. Now, you may ask, then, how could he really be tempted? What's the answer? Huh? He had a human body. Okay. Fair enough. Good enough for me. I was going to say even worse. I don't know. I don't really know. I don't really know how he could genuinely be tempted, and yet it was impossible for him to sin. Well, every once in a while we feel tempted and go sin. True. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I, I think the problem comes with this idea of the word possible. Uh, you know, we're wrestling with theoretical issues that, that really were impossible, ultimately. Landis. Yeah, that's that's what I get out of it. It was really impossible for him to sin. Now, I'll tell you this. Um, I look forward to the day when it will be impossible for me to sin. Don't you? And therefore, I don't look on this as an abstract uh, uh, rumination here. I look forward to the day when sin's done, finished, and I don't need to think about it or worry about it anymore. Don't you? I don't want to think that I could be there when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, that any day of those 10,000 years, I might get tripped up by some temptation and fall from grace. I want to know that I'm eternally con confirmed in righteousness forever and ever, don't you? I mean, aren't you pretty much thinking of heaven that way? You're not thinking of an eternal probation, are you? I'm not. And so, therefore, I'm looking forward to a day when it's impossible for me to sin. And I think that that's got to be totally connected with Christ, that I'm in Christ. And therefore, because I'm in him and because he's we have made made, made like him because we see him as he is, we don't we're, it's not possible for us to sin anymore. So I'm looking forward to that day. It's, that's why I say ultimately, this isn't just some arcane theological rumination. It's my hope that someday I will get to the place where I, it's impossible for me to sin. I know for a fact, as her brother Sean just said, I'm not there yet. I probably, no, definitely proved it today, okay? Um, 
but there will come a day that I'll be done with it. And I look forward to that. Now, Grudem uh, talks at this point about uh, Jesus' temptations. I think we've covered this. So let's go on to page 8 and talk about uh, why was Jesus' full humanity necessary. Is it important that Jesus was truly, fully, actually human being? Is that important? Well, first of all, uh, there has been traditionally, or back in church history, a denial of this doctrine that Jesus actually really was human. Uh, the denial is uh, works like this, that Jesus actually only seemed human. He only seemed human. Uh, the word docetism, uh, deni- uh, denial that of Jesus' actual humanity, comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or appear to be. The idea is that Jesus only seemed to be human but was not really man. Behind this doctrine is the idea that matter, physical material, is inherently evil, especially the human body. So, you know, you get those Greek philosophical systems that are teaching that matter, the stuff of the universe, is evil. But it isn't. You know, God called it all good. And so, therefore, he can really be man. He can really have flesh and bones, even as a resurrected man, and be good. Uh, it can be, he can be purely good and have a body. The body can be good. So, I think that's the root of it. We don't know that for sure, but I think it's reasonable to find the roots of docetism in this idea that matter, physical stuff, is inherently evil. Uh, but First John, in my opinion, the whole book of First John is written in part to refute this kind of heresy concerning Christ. Again and again, he's saying, what is the spirit of the Antichrist, that which denies Christ? Well, denies what about Christ? Well, a number of things. But one of the things they would deny about Christ is that he really was man. First John 4, 2 and 3 says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So, by the way, I think John is the only one who uses the term Antichrist. Only one. Uh, he, he uses it several times in his writings, but the spirit of the Antichrist is anything that denies the doctrine of Christ. And one of the key doctrines of Christ is his incarnation, that he genuinely was a man. He was in the flesh. So why was Jesus' full human, humanity necessary? Grudem gives a number of reasons, and I added one. I hope he doesn't mind. Um, but uh, if I ever get a chance to talk to him, we'll talk about it. I'm sure he covers it in another place. What I add is that Jesus had to be man so he could actually achieve for us a practical and tested righteousness that we could wear, so to speak, in Judgment Day. That it wasn't just theoretical, but that is that which was imputed to us. He, uh, You remember how Jesus began his uh, ministry with John the Baptist, remember? And John the Baptist uh, was baptizing sinners, confessing their sins that were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And you remember, uh, he comes to John and John stops him and says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Do you remember what Jesus uh, said to him? What was, what was the compelling reason for Jesus to be baptized? That's right. We must fulfill all righteousness. That's Jesus' whole life ministry. He's fulfilling all righteousness. So we'll talk about that in due time. First reason that Grudem gives is for representative obedience. Jesus had to be a man so he could represent us and obey. Unlike who? Adam, who represented and disobeyed. And that's caused all the trouble, hasn't it? He represented us and disobeyed, and so therefore we need a second Adam, which is the title given to him in 1 Corinthians 15. He's the second Adam. He represents us, only he obeyed. 
And in his obedience, we find our salvation. So like Adam at the tree in Eden, Jesus was our representative at the tree at Calvary. In his temptation in the desert and in Gethsemane, Jesus represented us. Christ is the second Adam or the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 45 through 47. And in order to be the second Adam, he's got to be human, doesn't he? He's got to be a man. He can't just seem to be a man. He actually has to be a man in order to be the second Adam. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. So there's definitely a parallel between the one man, one man, one man, one man. Jesus is one, the one man, the second Adam, Adam the first man. We get death and condemnation through the first Adam. We get eternal life through the second Adam. Secondly, Jesus had to be a man so that he could be a substitute sacrifice. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have taken our place and paid the penalty that we deserved. His sharing human nature, therefore, was essential to his atoning sacrifice. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 uh, says it very clearly. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And so clearly it says, Jesus had to have flesh and blood there in order to free us from the fear of death, in order to represent us, uh, to be a substitute sacrifice for us. Thirdly, he had to be a man so that he might be the one mediator between God and man. You know what a mediator is. You think about the uh, management labor disputes or something like that. Um, and there's, you know, intractable positions and then in comes a mediator and he listens to both sides and represents both sides. That's what a mediator is. He's a go-between. He's somebody who, who, uh, who can listen to the one, listen to the other and represent the one to the other and the other to the first. That's what a mediator is. Well, we needed a mediator because there was a, a gap, a separation, a controversy between us and God the Father. So therefore, we needed a mediator. Now, Job talks about it in Job 9.32 and 30, through 34. I love these quotes from Job. He is not a man like me that I might answer him. Who's he talking about there when he says, he is not a man like me? God the Father, the eternal God, almighty God, right? He's way up there on his throne. He's not a man like me. I mean, I can't get to him. Job is frustrated and putting his frustration in his words. Have you ever done that before? Put your frustration into words? Occasionally, maybe, but Job does it very eloquently and uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it gets written down for us. So there we have it. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. He wants his day in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. If only, Job says, well, is there? Yes, there is. And Jesus is the one. He's the mediator who goes between us and who represents us and who lays a hand on, on us both, uh, as it were. Not in any sense that we're equal to God, but he, is, he plays that mediator role, clearly. Uh, we need a mediator who could represent us to God and God to us. And so Galatians 3.20 speaks of it. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Clearly, the implication of that verse is that Jesus represents both. 
He represents God to man and he represents man to God. That's what he does. By the way, how does Jesus represent God to man? How did he he stand in the place of God facing the human race and represent God to us? Say again. He was sinless. Okay, good. Hebrews 1. Okay, how, how, what, tell me more. The image of God, the demonstrate of God. Okay, well, if I could just quote Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke through, to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So at least there you have the prophetic ministry of, of Jesus. Doesn't Jesus speak for God the Father to us? He represents God the Father to us. He speaks God the Father's mind to us. He represents God to us. And uh, he also provided purification for sin. He represents God's nature because he is, he is God. Okay, so he represents, he represents God to us. How does he represent us to God? How does he do that? How does he turn and face God concerning us? Really, have thought of this. <laughs> okay. More thoughts on this. How does he represent us to God? On the cross. Yes, he represents us to God by saying, Here is the blood that atones for their sin. Does that? How about it in his intercessory ministry? He prays for us. He stands there and says, here are their needs, Father. Meet their needs. Take care of their needs. Do you have ongoing needs? I said at the end of our prayer time before some of you came, but I said, isn't it marvelous that we can join in Jesus' intercessory ministry? But we are totally covered in prayer every moment, aren't we? Because Jesus prays for us to God the Father. So your needs are all met. Your prayer needs are met. Isn't that beautiful? Every need has been covered and Jesus is constantly praying for us. How else does Jesus represent uh, us to God? Well, remember it says in the book of Hebrews, quoting Isaiah 8, here am I and the children God has given me. So he's just, he, he, he identifies himself with us. He calls himself the son of man. That was his favorite title. He just identifies himself with the human race and represents us to God. That's a mediator, isn't it? And so it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Doesn't this just totally put an end to all the other religions in the world? Who else is a mediator? Who else can go between God and man like this? No one but the God, man, Christ Jesus. The only one. The only mediator there could possibly be. All right, therefore, in order to fulfill this role, uh, Christ had to be fully God and fully man. Fourth, uh, Jesus had to be truly man to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. Remember how God created Adam and Eve. He created man, male and female, in the image of God. And he said, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. God had an order in mind. Well, he still has that order in mind. He, He intends that it be achieved. And it gets achieved perfectly in Christ. Christ is the king over creation. All of it's been given to him. It's his. And so he perfectly fulfills the human role of ruling over and subduing the earth. He, it's his now. And he is, he is man. And that, by the way, I think is the significance, in my opinion. Others have different interpretation. But I think this is the significance of Revelation chapter 5 when the scroll is, is somebody's being uh, sought 
who is worthy to take the scroll and open it and look in it. And uh, John MacArthur, I listen to him and I think he's right, says that the scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's the deed of ownership to the earth. And remember how nobody is found who is worthy to open the scroll. And uh, then he says, do not weep. And then he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, But then he also sees a lamb looking as if it's been slain and the the beautiful complexity of that picture. And he comes and takes the scroll. And clearly, whether you accept that interpretation, interpretation or not, clearly that's a key moment when the lamb takes that scroll. And then he begins to open up the seals. And when it's all done, uh, you know, hallelujah. Now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He gets it all, all of it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So I, I think that's oh, it says it directly here in Hebrews two, uh, verse six to eight. It says, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mi- mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet In putting everything under him. God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him in, in context, <clears throat> excuse me, in context, the author to Hebrews is speaking about Jesus. Psalm 8 is talking about humanity, but uh, uh, Jesus is the perfect man. And so he rules over creation uh, perfectly. Uh, Christ is the perfect man <clears throat> to fulfill this role for everything to be put under his feet while he himself is subject to God. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor uh, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right. And also Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Isn't it incredible how God goes back to the origins, goes back to Genesis and just gets, makes it all right, goes back to the way it was intended to be and fixes it and makes it perfect. And he does that through Christ. All right, fifth, Jesus had to be a man so that he might be our example and pattern in life, that he might give us an example that we should follow in his steps. Christ lived a perfect life as a pattern, an example for us. This practical life of obedience uh, to the Father uh, helps us to know what righteousness looks like so we can follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, uh, there it's talking about, I know it's right in the middle of the passage, but it's talking about basically turning the cheek when you're persecuted. It's talking about, about, about responding mildly when you're, when you're, when you're poorly treated suffering suffering uh, with gentleness and humility. Uh, it says in 1 Peter 2.21, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In his steps, that's famous, isn't it? You ever heard that book? In his steps. Can anyone tell me what came out of in his steps? Oh, come on. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Any of you wearing a WW? That's not even in anymore. It's amazing how the fads come and go. It's not even in anymore. But the foundation of WWJD is that Christ came as an example for us. We would think, would Jesus have done this? And I think about this daily. I really do. I think, would Christ have responded the way that I did there at that moment? Would Christ have spoken the way I did? Would would Jesus have acted that way? And it's such a filter for us, isn't it? It's such a, a standard. We look at Christ and say, well... No, he wouldn't have. Um, it says in 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Did Jesus ever commend himself as an example? Did he ever say you should follow my example? 
Yes, he did. When? Do you remember? Yeah, it's in the love section. Remember how he washed his disciples' feet? And what did he do after he finished washing his disciples' feet? He puts his clothes back on, sits back in his seat, and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He says, I have given you an example. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. So he, he, say, he commends his own actions as an example. Now, Martin Luther uh, was concerned about this theme. Luther's always thinking about one thing, isn't he? Justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. That's his big deal. That's what he's always thinking about. So he worried about people that focus too much on Jesus as example. Why would he be concerned about that? Too much emphasis on behavior. Yeah. Performance. Yeah. Exactly. I read a book by Thomas Akempis, My Imitation of Christ. It was a popular read even in Luther's day. It was around from the 15th century. And it's a really winsome book and you read it and it fits a niche in your heart. Even as an unregenerate person, you read and say, boy, Jesus was a wonderful person. I'd like to be like him. And so people begin to try to imitate Jesus. They're unregenerate, but they try to be like Jesus. And they might actually think they're doing pretty well. Are any of us saved by how well we imitate Jesus? We are not, and thanks be to God for it, because we're not doing very well. That's the whole point. That's, that's what I mean when I say we're, 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 we're sinners. So we are not saved by imitating Christ. We're not saved by Him as example. We're saved by Him as substitutionary atoning sacrifice. But then, having been cleansed of our sin, how then shall we live? Follow Jesus. Imitate Him by the power of the Spirit. That's all. So I think Luther is right to give us that correction, but it's still wonderful to have Jesus as an example, isn't it? Uh, to have, a, have him as a pattern. All right, uh, sixth, Christ had to be human so that he might be the pattern of our resurrection, our redeemed body, bodies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15:23 says, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. What does that term first fruits mean to you? What does that mean? First fruit of the resurrection body. Okay, it comes from what? It's a, it's a horticultural, uh, you know, like a harvest term. It basically means the first fruit of the harvest. Is gonna, there's a lot after it. He's the first. There's second and 50th fruits. Lots of fruit coming. Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. I, I think we can logically conclude, therefore, that Jesus is the only one with a resurrection body. But someday, all the redeemed will have a resurrection body. And that resurrection body will be in the pattern of Christ's body. That's the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies will be like his body. Like uh, Charles Wesley put it, made like him, like him we rise. You see what I'm saying? We're going to be like him and we're going to rise as he did and in a body like his is. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and following says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first. 
but uh, the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So Jesus' resurrection gives us a pattern of what we can expect in the future. And what can we expect? What do you learn from the resurrection accounts of Jesus' body? What's it like? It could suddenly appear as special powers, it seems. Flesh and bones, he says. So he doesn't mention blood, but I don't know. I, yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderment to me. I wonder about eating and digestion. I really do. I don't know how that works. Maybe this stuff just disappears. But we're going to sit at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We just won't eat? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Jesus ate. He ate a lot of fish after his resurrection. He just seemed to like it. And so all you fish lovers, that's great. I'll be freed from my malady of despising seafood. Um, but, you know, all of these ills will be adjusted. Maybe even some of you will like sushi if they have it up in heaven. Who knows? You'll be able to eat it all. But uh, Jesus could eat. Jesus had flesh and bones. He could uh, go through walls. Grudem kind of denies this, but he doesn't deny it, but he just says the evidence isn't clear. It just says, though the doors were locked, Christ came and stood among them. And he says that's no certain proof that Jesus could go through walls. But my friends, the problem isn't in the upper room. The problem's the tomb. Because by the time the stone was rolled back, Jesus was long gone. And how did he get, get out? Well, I don't know. I don't know how a body goes through a wall. I don't understand a spiritual body, do you? But Jesus' body somehow went through the wall. I just think there's just a higher level of physical existence that we will have. Uh, I was talking to Alan about eyes that could last for a thousand years. So it's, it's something we can't comprehend. So there's going to be a higher level of the physical body and it will last forever and ever. So that's an amazing thing. Think about this. I thought about this the other day. I stubbed my finger while making my son's bed. His bed is wedged up against two walls and I can't get to it. And I try to pull it out, but the furniture is just so close and tight in there. And so I was just kind of in a hurry and I went, oh, it hurt. I just jammed my knuckle. And I thought about that verse that says, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So I think, how is that going to be in heaven? I mean, you won't jam your finger or if, if you do, you won't feel anything or your finger will go right through the wall and come back out. I, I don't know, but there's somehow this Freedom from pain. You won't be clumsy. I won't be clumsy. Yeah, so. <laughs> Lest I should think too highly of myself. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. But at any rate, you know, you all, you all won't be clumsy either if you have those tendencies. So at any rate, Christ gives us a pattern. Um, for our redeemed bodies. Also, Jesus came as a human being so that he could sympathize with us as high priest. Obviously, the book of Hebrews makes much of this. Uh, there seems to be almost, I, I just so, Hebrews takes us to places we wouldn't dare to go if it hadn't gone there already. You know, it calls, it calls the, uh, the law useless and obsolete. We would never have dared to do that except that it does it. 
Um, and it also says some things about Christ, that Christ suffered when he was tempted. And, and, and it even says that Christ learned obedience from what he suffered. We wouldn't dare to say these kinds of things. And so you're walking on holy ground when you try to, try to figure that out. But to some degree, it seems that Christ had to have this experience in order to be our faithful and merciful high priest. That, that he had to live through it so that he could in that way sympathize. And, and that's, that's a mystery to me, but I, I think I can understand it. We cannot say, nor can the devil say, you don't know what it's like to be fill-in-the-blank, hungry, tired, persecuted, attacked, uh, hurt, bleeding, dying. You don't. He does, and therefore he can sympathize. I, to me, I think that's powerful. There's a sympath, sympathizing there. We can say, Lord, you know what it's like to be hit with a satanic attack when you're weakest. You know what it's like. And that's what I'm going through right now. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm wiped out. I'm tired. And now here comes the devil with discouragement. Here he comes with other temptations. And I, on my own, I, I, can't, I can't do it. But Lord, you know, and so therefore help me. See, that's how it works. So Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Okay? So Grudem gives us those seven good reasons. I added this eighth, which I mentioned before. And that is that Jesus came as a human being. He lived a human life um, so that he might achieve a tested righteousness under the law, which can become for us our own positive righteousness. Perfect obedience under the law of Moses was righteousness for anyone who could do it. It says in Deuteronomy 6.25, And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Is that your righteousness, friends? No. Was that Jesus' righteousness? Well, yes and no. I mean, he had righteousness before he entered the world. But he had at least this kind of righteousness, didn't he? He perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. Perfectly. Jesus was perfectly righteous before taking on a human body. But the righteousness God wants to see from us on Judgment Day was to have been lived out on earth in daily obedience to his commands. Uh, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 2, 10, And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And Hebrews 2, 18, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ achieved that righteousness by actually living as a man under the law and perfectly obeying all of its precepts. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law. Do you see that? Jesus was born under the law. To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. We've already covered the baptism where Jesus says that we must fulfill all righteousness. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, I must tell you, I cannot fully understand the phrase once made perfect or having been made perfect as though he were somehow imperfect before. It seems rather having been qualified, having actually been tempted, having lived a life under the law of Moses, having done all of that, he is now qualified to redeem those under the law. That seems to be what the uh, scripture is saying. If Christ had never been a man, he could not have achieved this tested righteousness, which I think will be clothing for us on judgment day. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, 
Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. So clearly, Christ's righteousness saves us. Christ's obedience saves us. Now, I give you a note here. Christ's death on the cross is our righteousness negatively in that it atoned for our actual transgressions of the law. Negatively. What do I mean by Christ's righteousness? Or it's ours negatively. Well, it covers how you transgressed. It covers the ways you broke the law. It covers what you did wrong. But where is your positive righteousness? How are you going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father? Where is that? Well, all the good things I did since I was converted, right? (laughs) Don't you want a better righteousness than that? I do. And so wouldn't it be better to be standing in Christ's righteousness? And what is that? Well, it's his perfect obedience to the Father. It's the glory of of his perfection. Christ's perfect life under the law is our righteousness positively in which we will shine forevermore from the moment of justification on. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't do righteous acts. I'm not saying that. We are his workmanship created to do good works. And I think those good works having been cleaned up a little, (laughs) will shine forever and ever. I think that they are glory to God in a certain way, but so also is Christ's imputed righteousness, the fact that he stood in our place and lived a righteous life. Now, one final statement we want to make about Christ's humanity is that Jesus will be man or human forever. Now, it's the kind of thing you might not think about. You know, you might think, well, he was man then, human then. Now he's God. He's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, right? sitting up there, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you think of him as fully human now? It's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? But he is. He must be. Don't you see that? He must be. Isn't he still in his resurrection body? Isn't he? Isn't his body alive even to this day? Yes, it is. Is Jesus human right now? Fully human? Yes, he is. Absolutely and completely human. Uh, and there are some indications of this. Revelation 1, 12 through 14. I turned around. This is John. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. We have all kinds of interesting discussions uh, in the staff and talk about things, especially with Jeremy. I love Jeremy. I'm never sure where his mind's going to go or mine for that matter. And so we have interesting discussions. So we were talking today about the speculation that Augustine had that all of us would have resurrection bodies set around age 21. Our resurrection bodies would be like at peak kind of performance. And so... um, we were speculating like you wouldn't believe. I mean, just we're in that. I mean, what about infants? So they kind of get grown up to age 21. Is that what happens? Uh, and, and then what about hair color? I, and I brought up this verse. I said, Jesus' hair was white like wool. So, you know, is he, are we going to have, do we get to choose a hair color? Or is that something, you know, or Jesus' hair is white? Um, you might think this is a waste of time, but it really isn't. You know, your tithe dollars at work. We really are thinking of important things and working them through. Right, Eric? Don't we do that? Important things. Valuable things. Um, so at any rate, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, I read this section from uh, Augustine when I was writing my dissertation on end times things, and I thought that's far more speculation than I want to do. 
But this much I know. Revelation 1, 12 through 14 calls Jesus the Son of Man, doesn't he? He is the Son of Man. And he's going to be Son of Man when he returns. When he comes back, he's going to be the Son of Man at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is going to be glorious. He will be fully human at that time. He is man now. That's an amazing thought. Now, what problems does that bring us into? Well, how do you be omnipresent and have a human body at the same time? Do you ever wonder about that? <laughs> Didn't Jesus say, and surely I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Now, go into all the earth. He said, I'm with all of you always. Now, go into all the earth. How do you do that in a body? Anyone have an answer? <laughs> I've thought about that, and of course, that, that's the, quick, the spirit of Jesus, and by his spirit, okay? But is, so Jesus just sends forth the spirit, but the second person of the Trinity is just kind of stuck there up at the right hand of God? I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you that the spirit of Jesus is with us, and he sends forth the spirit. Sean, you have an answer? I knew you would. So go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so he saw him. Okay. So his spirit is there, but his body's in one place. Okay. Well, it's actually not a bad answer because you remember how uh, was it Elisha who uh, who healed Naaman the Syrian, and then Naaman offered him a bunch of uh, clothes and rewards or whatever, and and Elisha said, "May God deal with me if I take anything from you. Go home." You know. So off he goes, and then Gehazi says, "Man, wait, this is a missed business opportunity here. We could have gotten something." The guy was he was clearly willing to give. And so he goes after and says, oh, by the way, my master says that some new guys have come and they need some things. So I was like, sure, take it, whatever. Remember what Elisha said to him when he came back? He said, did not my spirit go with you when you went and did that? I saw it all. My spirit was there with you. And he's a prophet. He's just a prophet. And he said, my spirit was there with you. That probably is the answer. I can't go much further than that. All I know is Jesus has a body. It has flesh and bones, it says in Luke 24. And yet he is in some sense omnipresent. Okay. Maybe it's part of that spiritual body thing that we could never quite figure out. All right. And then there's Stephen's statement in Acts 7.56. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So there he is standing at the right hand of God. What a powerful vision. All right. So Jesus had to be man. It's essential to our salvation. And he is forever human. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.